0: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening, welcome to the show. As you know, you're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones, and I know you are driven nuts with all of this budget stuff, I will try to make some simple sense of it all. Two points first, Morrison and Co ran up unconscionable and unforgivable levels of debt on an almost totally mistaken response to coronavirus. Those of us who argued that at the time were cancelled. Now what we said is being proven to be right. I'm coming back to that coronavirus issue and the budget shortly. So yes, Chalmers and Albanese did inherit a dreadful fiscal mess, that is, expenditure, versus revenue. However, Albanese wanted to be in government. Remember, we were told that under Labor, all would be better. I told you that was a mirage at the time, and it is. The first and unchallengeable point that I will make about the budget is a simple one. It is a coal-fired budget. Without our resource exports, we're gone. Yet these same resources, Albanese and Bowen, demonise and want left in the ground, renewables will do the job. If someone 10 years ago had stood up and said, this is my country, Australia, a resource powerhouse in the world, but we're going to shut down our reliable energy sources and power industry and homes with unreliable wind and sun, you would have been rightly laughed out of town. So I can do without Chalmers telling us all in grief-stricken mode about the bad times ahead. Yes, Jim Chalmers, there are going to be bad times ahead because you and Bowen and Albo have created them. Your policies are wrong and destructive. Reinstate our energy resources and stop this rubbish about net zero. And life then becomes easier. Instead, this budget forks out hundreds of millions of dollars to compensate for power bill increases which the government has created. In the inaugural Productivity Commission chairman report, Gary Banks, he was the inaugural chairman, he has said, and I've mentioned this to you before. Australia is going backwards on energy, industrial relations, taxation and government spending, such that the public is losing confidence in the democratic process. And his words, the nation is facing new sovereign risk problems. By the way, early on, may I offer some advice to the shadow treasurer, Angus Taylor. Don't respond to the Chalmers budget tomorrow night with the usual platitudes about labour being tax and spend. Firstly, admit that in government, the coalition got it wrong. Morrison trotted off to Glasgow to line up with Labor and the Greens on energy policy, and no one was prepared to stand up and say that the extravagant response to coronavirus, shutting down business, putting people out of work, paying everyone 750 bucks, with the end result that the nation has lost its work ethic. Admit the coalition is part of the problem that we all must address. Well, Chalmers last night responded by basically saying, don't worry, government will look after you. And the money was shoveled out. The greatest crisis we have now, and it is a crisis, is the cost and disorganisation of energy policy as we squander our natural resources by pretending that we can reduce carbon dioxide emissions when China alone is building two coal-fired power stations a week. Chalmers and Bowen and Albanese are in government. They're the ones who have to answer the simple question. How do you provide reliable electricity when there's no wind or sun? I'll come to that later in the program, too. But they can't answer that question. Instead, they've cooked up a scheme to cap the price of gas, which means at the end of the day, there won't be any bloody gas. Just imagine if the government imposed a price cap on property. Right? You own property. You're watching me. Would you be running out to sell it if the government said you can't sell it for more than $50,000? Well, that's what's happening here. No one will spend money to produce more gas. I don't think any of this lot in Canberra understand how stupid they are. They want to eliminate every bit of the use of fossil fuels, oil, gas and coal. And then when the prices go up, because the basic law of demand and supply is if you restrict supply, prices go up. They then shovel out borrowed money to compensate for the increase in energy prices that they've created. All of this could be stopped or solved if you stopped the lunatics from pursuing this net zero. As well, they're going to increase the population, apparently, to 50 million. Bring them in, bring them in. I mean, this would be laughable if it weren't so tragic. More people mean, it's coming out of my mouth, more more carbon dioxide emissions. But we can't manage with the 26 million people we've got. Now, under Paul Broad, a former energy advisor to Bowen, remove the millstone around his neck and depart in Snowy Hydro, I'll talk about that next week, claiming that Bowen's green energy plan is to use the vernacular bullshit. Will Angus Taylor in his budget reply speech tomorrow night stand up and say that Bowen's target of 82% renewable electricity by 2030 is unachievable rubbish? Well, what's the response to the mess we're in? By the government. 1.5 billion? in household energy bill relief, never been necessary until the lunatics were put in charge of the political asylum. 300 million to make homes more energy efficient. They've been energy efficient for years with fossil fuel power. Out there every day, people in Struggle Street get up early, roll up their sleeves and go to work and they're taxed to the eyeballs. Forget income tax, that's the least of our worries. You go to the petrol bowser, pay a tax, smoke a cigarette. Well, last night the taxes went up. Take out an insurance policy, it's tax. Go shopping for anything except food and you'll pay a tax. And yet the average Australian battle learns that there's 4.7 billion last night to increase job seeker and other welfare payments. What relief is there for the worker? As I said last night, there are some people who are genuinely unemployed and we should help them. But are you telling me That the 508,500 Australians registered as unemployed are genuinely unemployed. If you don't want to work, you should get nothing from the taxpayer. Then of course, we had to triple the bulk billing incentive for GPs for under 16s. If an under 16 goes to the doctor for a pensioner and other Commonwealth concession card holders, 3.5 billion. Does everyone who goes to a doctor really need a doctor? That's why in Tony Abbott's first budget, he talked about a Medicare co-payment. They've got one in New Zealand. When Tony Abbott wanted to introduce a co-payment in May 2014, he proposed a piddling $7. New Zealand's co-payment today varies between 15 and 50 bucks. Abbott was run out of town, but as a result, Medicare, as we know it, is under significant siege. Last night, another 28 billion in the schools. You've heard me before, money won't solve the problem in education. There is an education crisis. The issue is what is being taught. Children all know about Welcome to Country and Invasion Day, but they couldn't tell you what river runs past Melbourne. One billion's been committed to the Brisbane Olympic Games. It's borrowed money, one billion. 240 million for Hobart's new AFL stadium, in the hope, presumably, that Tasmania will vote yes for The Voice. Debt-riddled Victoria, Andrewstown, nothing for the 2026 Commonwealth Games and nothing of note to harvest water. Indeed, three projects in New South Wales, the Dungowan Dam near Tamworth, the Wyangala Dam near Cowra, and the proposal to raise the Warragamba Dam wall, all have bitten the dust. But if we build dams and harvest water, we can move population west of the Great Dividing Range and take advantage of some of the best agricultural land in the world. I've been arguing this for years, but governments who think they know everything know absolutely nothing. What about the Trucky? applying his demanding and dangerous trade in difficult circumstances every day on the roads. Oh, forget about him. The heavy vehicle road user charge has gone up. Used to be 27.2 cents a litre of diesel. It'll now be 32.4 cents. The poor old truckie paying for all those with their hand out. And the ultimate delusion? Well, interest rates have gone up 11 times to slow down the economy. Yet here is the biggest spender of them all, The Albanese government, increasing spending in a single year by $50 billion, outpacing the $33 billion increase in revenue. Of course, exports of coal, gas and iron ore are the primary reason for the $180 billion tax windfall over four years. There's money everywhere. Revenue this year is up $88 billion on what had been forecast previously. Company tax up $48 billion all those resource company profits. Personal income tax up 33 billion on the forecast of 14 months ago. And yet what do we do? What have we got? We've got a piddling $4 billion surplus so that Chavez can get hairs on his chest. $4 billion in a budget that spends $630 billion. All this on the back of our resources, which this government is going to kill off. If you want some staggering figures, our net debt in three years time, over 700 billion, a budget deficit in three years' time, 28 billion. And here's the rub: our revenue in three years' time, 748 billion. 748 billion, but we can't find savings. They can't stop the spending. The forecast from 748 billion dollars of revenue spending 771 billion. The coalition should stand up in the parliament tomorrow night for the budget reply and say we got a lot of things wrong. Easy to be wise in hindsight, but this government wanted the job. The coalition should say these are the things that have to be done. There must be spending reform and identify where. We've got to return Australia to a nation of independent people, not dependent people with their hand out. We've got to stop. We've got to stop abusing our greatest asset, our natural resources, and start powering the the economy again. Angus Taylor tomorrow night has got to assert that our wealth cannot be secured with renewable energy. Yet, from cheap energy, everything else flows. Angus Taylor should stand up and just say, we've got to stop thinking about ourselves and think about our children. That budget last night wasn't about us. They have been planning for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of budget. We'll get them re-elected. They're worried about themselves. They're not worried about us. And on what we've seen in this Chalmers budget, we will leave our children an unconscionable mess and unrepayable debt. Taylor should then pause, Angus Taylor, in his budget reply and say, and remember, the greatest obscenity of all of this is that we, the politicians, will be gone, but we'll continue to take our hefty superannuation, quarantined from the mess that we leave behind. I mentioned recently, the last time I spoke to Rebecca Weiser, My correspondence is full of people asserting legitimately the negative impacts of coronavirus vaccines. I'll come to that in a moment. But when you think of all the freedoms that were denied to us during coronavirus, the money that's been wasted, sending us towards a trillion dollars of debt, we now have the World Health Organization saying that the COVID-19 pandemic is no longer a global health emergency. Yet there are thousands of people every day contracting coronavirus. What really has ended is not the virus, but the alarmism. China continues to refuse to allow a full-scale independent investigation as to how COVID-19 began, and there are still risks in relation to the virus. The World Health Organization has this emergency committee on the COVID crisis, but the head of the World Health Organization is this fellow, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Now, we should note that he's a member of the Ethiopian Marxist-Leninist party. How did he get the gig with the World Health Organization? Well, with China's support, because Ethiopia at the time was renegotiating billions of dollars in loans from Beijing for a railway that links the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa to neighbouring Djibouti to avoid being buried by, quote, serious debt woes tied to China's controversial infrastructure push. So there you are. This is the bloke calling the shots at the WHO. The left are in the ascendant everywhere. The World Health Organization is now saying the virus is here to stay. Those of us who said that at the outset were cancelled. There's been a lot of talk about the World Health Organization down the track having control over governments during any further global health crisis. That is, international health rules would change and the WHO would have complete health sovereignty and unlimited authority over governments in a global health crisis, I have to say that is not true. Many of you are writing to me about it. It is not true. What will happen via amendments to the international health regulations is that WHO, or if you're a WHO, if a country is a WHO member, those countries will be able to share data and better prepare. We're told anyway for future pandemics, but preserve the authority of individual countries. Well, to the budget. We're told that free COVID-19 vaccine boosters, this was last night, and more spending on antivirals are part of a new billion dollar investment to protect the population from severe disease. Don't you like the notion about free vaccines? Firstly, they're not free. And the government has never told us what they paid Big Pharma for the vaccines and the boosters. We're never told the figure. Billions of dollars and Big Pharma have had a field day. But there's nothing in the budget in relation to appropriate compensation for those whose health and well-being have been seriously damaged as a result of the mandatory vaccination program, determined by the Morrison government and supported by Labor. On March 26, 2020, as Rebecca Weiser has written, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who in my view should at least be in the dock, said, and I quote, "The worst possible thing you could do is vaccinate someone and make them worse." unquote. And he was talking about the nightmare scenario where a vaccine not only fails to prevent infection, but causes a more serious illness in a vaccinated person than in one who is unvaccinated. But this is happening. People are writing to me and making a simple point. All cases of vaccine failure should be investigated. Well, bear with me. Rebecca Weiser has written about a Whitsunday Islands GP, Dr. Melissa McCann. Has revealed disturbing safety signals that public health officials have ignored. She was vaccinated, but she started to notice an alarming increase in adverse events in her practice as the vaccine was rolled out. She audited the cases and examined the database of adverse events collated by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and she found a dramatic increase in strokes, heart attacks, and neurological disorders compared with previous years. Now, Rebecca Weiser has written extensively and thoroughly about this. Her point is that most people with vaccine injuries, including the families of the dead, are not able to access compensation and they've been mocked and ostracised. And as Rebecca writes, and I quote, McCann, Dr McCann, has become a patient advocate and is preparing a class action for compensation to be filed in the federal court. Rebecca cites Fauci, writing in January 11, an article published in Cell, Host and Microbe, that COVID vaccines are, quote, reminiscent, unquote, of, quote, suboptimal, unquote, flu vaccines. In that, quote, both elicit incomplete and short-lived protection against evolving virus variants, unquote. short lived protection? Weren't we told that vaccines were the answer? We had to have them. And if we didn't, we couldn't travel. We couldn't get a job. we were ostracised. Yet Fauci has acknowledged that these vaccines have not ended the pandemic. But as Rebecca says, Fauci has said nothing about vaccine injuries and spiralling excess mortality in highly vaccinated countries. That task has been left to our heroic Aussie doctor, Dr. Melissa McCann, who has so far proved up to the task. It's also been left to the outstanding journalist, Rebecca Weiser. She's gallant and she's courageous, but of course, until this station, Rebecca, like many of us, wasn't allowed to say these things. Rebecca, thank you for your time again, and congratulations on the work you do None of what you do could be done without tremendous personal sacrifice and thorough research. Just bring us up to date, please, on where the Dr. Melissa McCann campaign stands. Has she had her right to practice as a doctor withdrawn?
1: No, uh, as far as I'm aware, she is still able and and that's certainly a blessing uh, that she has been able to continue to practise. But the great news is, Alan, that she has now uh, uh, engaged a solicitor and initiated a class action. Uh, There are more than 500 people so far and it's growing every day who are involved in this class action. They are people who have suffered vaccine injuries, and they're also the family—sometimes the brother, sometimes the mother, uh, and other relative of someone who actually died, seemingly as a result of the vaccines. And these uh, people have now joined together, and uh, that class action uh, has been notice has been served on. Professor John Skerritt, who's the head of the Therapeutic Goods Administration, on Professor Brendan Murphy, who was until very recently, uh, was uh, still is the head of the uh, Commonwealth Department of Health and Ageing. And Professor Skerritt has just resigned in the last couple of weeks in the middle of April. So they are two of the respondents for this class action case, uh, full vaccine injured, people.
0: And is the federal government collectively one of the respondents?
1: Yes, that's right. So uh, the the action uh, states that there has been malfeasance on the part of the Therapeutic Goods Administration and various other uh, parts of the government are held responsible for not properly regulating, for not ensuring the safety and the efficacy of the vaccines Mm. and ensuring people Mm. that were aware, were fully informed of potential risks and side Mm. effects and Mm. so forth, and and were able to really give informed consent, which is absolutely crucial.
0: Rebecca, are you aware, as I am, that there are many people still out of employment because they're not vaccinated? I mean, everyone keeps complaining about the public sector, you know, shortage of police, shortage of nurses and so on. Uh, Has the taboo on them been lifted?
1: No, it hasn't. There are many people who are still unable to work. Uh, And you know, it's a classic example. Last night, we saw Treasurer Jim Chalmers talking about how important it was. He was giving a pay rise to people, aged care workers. Now aged care workers were coerced and forced to get vaccinated, and if they refused to, they were unable to, right. they were they lost their jobs and they are still out of jobs. Right. Nurses, there are still nurses. Mm. Now this goes to some extent state by state, but there are certainly still people right. in in healthcare, doctors, mm. they are still under mandates. And and as you know and as I know, we are aware that doctors also have died as a result of these mandates. Well,
0: let's come come to that, because this is a horrific story, viewers, but Rebecca has written about Dr Barry Schultz, a highly respected paediatrician, surgeon and obstetrician in Adelaide. He wasn't opposed to conventional vaccines. He immunised thousands of children. He himself was fully vaccinated. So Dr Schultz was concerned about the safety and efficacy of the COVID vaccines, so much so that when he was sent the paperwork to be eligible to administer the gene-based injections, which were only provisionally approved, he knew that if anything went wrong, he knew that he was the one who could be sued. So he wrote on the back of the form, get stuffed," and told his staff to send it back. But he had to be vaccinated to be able to treat his patients in hospital. Rebecca has written that on October 2, 2021, Dr Schultz had his first Pfizer jab. Within three days, he had blood in his urine. He suffered nosebleeds. Both are adverse events associated with COVID vaccination. So he booked in to see a specialist, but continued to work 80 hours a week. He never got to the specialist appointment. Two weeks after his first jab, he woke at 2.30 a.m. on Tuesday, October 19, hemorrhaging internally, including in his brain, and vomiting blood profusely, he was taken immediately to hospital where he was eventually pronounced dead. Rebecca, what does anyone in public administration say about this?
1: Well, it's been, it's been a tragedy, and yet the way uh, the public administration has responded has only compounded that tragedy. His poor wife, who is a retired registered nurse, Pair of them have given their life to caring for other people and to caring for the community. She had to fight for more than a year for the Australian Health um, uh, Opera, the agency that regulates health practitioners, for them to lodge simply a report that the vaccine should be suspected as a cause. You know, the doctors who he worked with immediately all wanted to say. This isn't caused by the vaccine. Well, look, in that short period of starting to have uh, symptoms of internal bleeding uh, only three days after the vaccine and for that to go on and to end up with this catastrophic hemorrhaging in, uh, in the brain, The vaccines have to be considered Mm. to Mm. be suspect.
0: Well, you've made the point that it's well established in COVID medical literature, that it is the spike protein found in both vaccines and the virus that damages blood vessels and causes hemorrhaging. So Dr Schultz's death occurred, didn't it, fewer than three weeks after the jab. So shouldn't the vaccine be suspected of having contributed to his death? But then you've told the story about the widow.
1: Absolutely. So this is the problem, you know, that there's been a lot of pressure by the regulatory agencies, particularly by APRA, uh, also by the TGA, to simply maintain the narrative that the vaccines are safe and effective. They don't want these reports. They discourage doctors. Doctors who report say that they feel pressured, they feel coerced, they feel worried that they themselves may be investigated. And certainly there are Mm. doctors who who are no longer able to practise simply because they gave exemptions for uh, people not to have to wear masks or not to have to be vaccinated. Or might
0: have used ivermectin with something else again. I mean, uh, Dr. Schultz's brother has joined that class action that you are talking about. And I should say to our viewers, all of these people in the class action, and you heard Rebecca say the numbers are increasing every day, they've all suffered serious or life-threatening events, or they're the relatives of those who've died following... COVID vaccination. Many have left. Many are left, of course, and people are writing to me with significant disabilities. So as the news filters out about this class action, it's the first of its kind in Australia. More people are joining each day. So, Rebecca, Dr. Melissa McCann, who instigated the action, is now crowdfunding, as I understand, to assist with legal and travel costs. How is that going?
1: Well, I think she'd got to um, at least a hundred thousand, which is great. That means that when people have to maybe fly from different parts of Australia to be able to give their testimony that they're able to do it. And any money that is uh, gained through this action will go 100% to be shared by the injured or the uh, relative of of the Mm. person who Mm. has died. But, But Alan, you know, it's just such the, the government has, theoretically, has a compensation scheme, but it is so narrow yes. and so few of the yes. injuries that we're seeing are actually accepted. And they only cover you, for example, for... Um, you know, out of pocket costs there for, you know, Mm. time in hospital or, you know, it's just so penny pinching when people. Absolutely.
0: They don't don't want to admit to it. I mean, Mm. these applicants, I should say to our viewers, will argue or are, are arguing that the Therapeutic Goods Administration did not fulfil its duty to properly regulate the vaccine. And that has resulted in considerable harm to Australians. Now, of note, those respondents, I repeat, are the Australian government the Department of Health and Aged Care Secretary, Dr Brendan Murphy, and the former head of the TGA, the adjunct professor, John Skerritt. Now, so far there have been over, now get these figures, and I'll just get get, uh, Rebecca to verify these. So far, Rebecca is arguing there have been over 986 deaths and 138,000 adverse events that have been reported to the TGA following COVID vaccines. What has been the response of the TGA?
1: The TGA uh, has submitted so far that uh, I think we're up to 14 of those deaths. 14, it says, have been caused by the vaccine. 13 of those were AstraZeneca and one was Moderna. Now, as I've said on your program before, Alan, I know because I have seen the report of an expert pathologist that there is at least one Pfizer death, Uh, but the the TGA hasn't put it up there. It's Mm. it's not satisfied with an expert pathologist. It's going to wait for the coroner's ruling. Well,
0: Well, there's got to be something going on here because all flu vaccines, there are reports that verify that for all flu vaccines since records began in 1971, There have been 28 deaths and 3,924 adverse events. That's since 1971. 28 deaths and 3,924 adverse events. COVID vaccines, not 28 deaths, 986. Not 3,924 adverse events, 138,000. But then you're saying the COVID vaccine reports may well be an understatement.
1: That's right. There've been, uh, there was a study commissioned in the United States by the Department of Health and Human Services, commissioned Harvard University to do a study, and they found that only about 1% of uh, injuries were actually reported. So you, we know that there is an underreporting factor. We just don't know how big that might be. But Alan, one thing we do know is that there are these very large numbers of vaccine injuries and deaths in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Europe. That's right. Every That's country right. in the world that has had a vaccine probe. And they have all mm. had the, the vaccine injuries and deaths have enormous yes. similarities. And,
0: and governments in total denial. Wasn't the AstraZeneca vaccine withdrawn from Australia uh, this year, March 21, but the TGA says it had nothing to do with safety, even though it's suspected of contributing to the deaths of 484 Australians, 100 of them aged 18 to 64, 342 aged 65 and above, 42 Australians whose ages are apparently unknown how that happens, I don't know. Have those figures been verified
1: Those are the figures that are on the Therapeutic Goods Administration website. Uh, Your viewers may know that they can go, if they Google TGA and the database is called the DAEN, the Database of Adverse Events Notification, they'll be able to see those numbers and they get slowly updated day by day. But they are there and yet not, in my my opinion, properly explained, not proper reports. No, not a
0: word, not a word, not a word anywhere. And it's not raised in the parliament by anybody. I understand that the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca is being sued in the UK by a group representing the vaccine injured and dead, which includes the husband of this popular BBC North radio broadcaster, Lisa Shaw. She was only 44 when she died a week after her AstraZeneca jab a vaccine which produced in her fatal side effects. Uh, Rebecca, we could go on all night. Where is this going to end?
1: Well, look, uh, Alan, I think this, uh, unfortunately, it seems as if this will end in in the law courts, that that seems to be the only way that a lot of people will be able to get justice. And I do think I encourage your viewers, if they or their friends or family, um, have been injured or if they know someone who has died, do please get in touch. If you, they go to the Spectator website and to my article, they'll be able to get more details. And I will put some more up there so mm. that people can get in touch with Dr Melissa McCann and mm. can uh, yes. become part of this class action.
0: Uh, absolutely. I mean, just to our viewers, you've got to understand this, this Therapeutic Goods Administration claim, these are their words, that they are, quote, carefully monitoring and reviewing reports of myocarditis and pericarditis, and quote, closely review all deaths reported in the days and weeks after COVID vaccination. That plainly, Rebecca, is not the case.
1: Well, it beggars belief that they claim to be carefully monitoring these deaths. And in dozens and dozens of cases, they can't even tell you how old the person was Mm. when that information is meant to be recorded both on a death certificate if somebody dies, or it should be recorded on the Australian Immunisation Register. It should have the person's name, their age, the vaccine that they took. But seemingly, the Therapy Goods Administration doesn't have that detail. Why is the question? Mm. And I think those forms need to be adjusted. If they don't know the exact age, then it should say 82 to 83 or oh, in their 80s. God's sake,
0: every death certificate certifies yeah. date mm. of birth and age. Mm. Rebecca, we'll leave it there. But I've got, I got to say, you know, we talk about the justice system. And that's already now being analysed in detail in Canberra in relation to that other matter and the Brittany Higgins. This is the health system. This is a scathing indictment of government and health authorities around the country in a state of abject denial, notwithstanding the deaths and injury to people as a result of vaccination. We'll keep our viewers posted. Rebecca, we're grateful for your work, your scholarship, and we'll have you back again shortly.
1: Thank you, Alan.
0: There she is. What a great woman that is. Rebecca Weiser. Back to the budget and young people, there are two issues inextricably bound up here, education and housing. Last night, another $28 billion to be thrown at education when, as I said earlier, money won't solve that problem. The crisis in education is about what's being taught and what is not being taught. But back to housing and education, there are more than 3 million current and graduated students who have a hex debt, a thing which is now called HELP an ironical, ironical name because that's the last thing that government is doing to these young people seeking better qualifications in order to make a better contribution to the workforce and their country. Yet the higher education loan program ties young people to extraordinary levels of debt. And these young Australians have to first pay off their hex or help debt. If they're renting, they have to pay rent. And then the woke banks won't lend them more than 80% of the bank valuation of a house or an apartment. So if it's a $500,000 apartment or house, you won't get much for that in Sydney. You'll do better in Brisbane, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth and Hobart. But the point is, on those realities, why don't we face the truth that we're consigning our young people to a world in which they may never own their own home. I make this point because this help or hex debt is indexed to inflation. Not a word about that last night because simply, Politicians live in another world. I've had a letter from a student who said that based on the 7.8% inflation rate, his HECS debt will increase by almost $6,000. But over the past eight years, despite annual contributions, government loan indexation has added over $12,000 to his HECS debt. It took the debt from $63,000 to $75,000. Now I know this young bloke very well. He's no bludger. He works two and three jobs, but he makes the point that debt affects borrowing capacity for a mortgage. And he makes the very valid point that some undergraduate degrees cost nearly $100,000. And that wages, I mean, basically at the end of the day, prevent people from even being able to pay the rent, the wages they get, let alone able to save enough to make a larger contribution to their hex debt in order to cover the loan indexation every year. And he asks me the unanswerable question. He just wrote to me, asked for my advice. He said, how do you find some money to put away to save for a deposit, save for a deposit? His words, quote, I think it's time for our government to take another look at the setup of hex debts. I'm all for paying back my loan. But for the past eight years, I've worked as an academic lecturer at a university where my full-time wage is 70000 The average wage in Australia is now 90000 so I'm sitting comfortably below the average income. He said, this is to hold on to a position where you need a master's degree to work, which will cost over $100,000 by the time you've completed your undergraduate and master's degree, unquote. Now, he tells me saving to have a deposit for a house. But because of interest rates, his borrowing capacity is heavily diminished. And when you add the $75,000 in hex that he owes, he asks, do I throw all of my money into the hex debt and spend another eight years saving for a house? He says, imagine what the market will be like then, not to mention how the banks will view my application in relation to my age. Smart bloke, this young fella. He makes this very important point. I look to Parliament full of members who studied for free and enjoyed a far smoother ride in the quest for for financial freedom." Now, this is true. This young bloke is arguing that there should be a freeze on loan indexation. I agree entirely, but not a word about this in the budget. It's a simple story. We expect to have a highly educated and skilled workforce. Not all of these young people come from rich families. The only way they can get that education and acquire those skills is to have a hex debt. Yet here is government again punishing young Australians for trying to build the education and the skills base that this country desperately needs. Yet the government indexes the hex debt. We come back to the truism that the problems of our country and the problems we face are the consequence of government policy, whether it's climate change, coronavirus, population policy or housing. Here we are arguing about a skills shortage. Young Australians are trying to better themselves by gaining extra qualifications. Most have to take out a HELP loan because their parents can't afford a $100,000 university course. But government loves taking your money, hence the indexation. How does this create an incentive for young people to better themselves? I would argue that for the first degree and the first vocational course, the HEX loan should not face any indexation. This should be a government committed to young Australians getting better qualifications and adding to productivity in the workforce. I'll tell you something, government hasn't even thought of this, let alone considered what should be done about it. I repeat, 28 billion thrown at education last night, none of that to address this issue. The tragic end result of this policy of indexing HELP loans, the end result is also tragic because unless something changes, millions of young Australians will never be able to afford their own home. Let's go to David Maddox in Britain because while it's all been coronation, and that in itself has many stories, on the eve of the coronation, there were local government elections and the headlines said that the Tories, the Conservatives were hammered. But if those results were extrapolated to a general election, it puts the Conservatives on about 29%, And Labor on 36%. By the way, if you can add up, I mean, that's about 65% for the major parties. And this is the problem around the world. The major parties can't command respect from the voter. Frightening this, but however there it is, Extrapolate it: Conservatives 29, Labor 36. Remember Albanese won government here on 32%. 67% of the people who voted didn't want him. But anyway, in Britain, the gap is narrowing. So who knows what that means to a general election next year? Well, one person who would know is David Maddox, and he joins me. David, thank you for your time. I mean, the big issue seems to be a grassroots revolt if Rishi Sunak sought to blame Boris Johnson for the result. Is that happening?
2: Well, it's happening. Uh, He he, he and his supporters are definitely trying to blame Boris Johnson and Liz Truss as well, actually. because of that uh, catastrophic mini-budget last last year with Liz Truss. But the truth is that Rishi's now been Prime Minister for nine months, and he clearly hasn't won over uh, the electorate. Uh, I mean, th- these were pretty dreadful results. And the interesting thing is it was 1,000 council seats lost, which makes Labour the biggest uh, government, the uh, biggest party of
0: local government. Yes, yeah, just just this giving those figures. was on
2: top of. When yeah, the I'll last just give those figures,
0: David, before we go, I'll just give those figures to our viewers. Yeah. The Conservatives lost 1,050 council seats. That's a third yeah. of all that they were defending. They lost control of 50 councils. Mm. Uh, just on those figures, is that worse than was expected? They were talking about 1,000, weren't they?
2: Well, this is a problem. When your expectation management was to say we might lose a 1,000 seats, and then you actually do worse than that. I mean, they said that, and everybody laughed at the expectation management. The reality was they thought they might lose 700. Uh, So when it's a lot worse, then you're in trouble. But the historic point about this is that four years ago, these same seats were run, and this was in the middle of a disastrous Theresa May government, which was, you know, middle of all the Brexit mess. Uh, She couldn't control her party at all. She was about to be kicked out of office. And they lost 1,300 seats that time around. So if you add those up, you know, we're talking about uh, 2,300 seats lost in the two rounds of the yeah. same seats, in an election. It's it's really poor to do a thousand seats worse than Theresa May. Yeah. I mean, is, just repeat what really David poor. said. This is
0: the first time in twenty years that the Conservatives now have fewer local councillors than Labour. Uh, David, are voters punishing the Conservatives for the chaos of the Boris Johnson years, or the way Boris was treated?
2: I think it's a bit of both. I think a lot of Conservative voters are really angry about the way Boris is treated and are staying at home. A lot of activists are really angry about it and wouldn't go out and knock doors. Uh, There's this big conference coming up at the weekend, uh, a Conservative Democratic organisation, which really is a front for supporting bringing back Boris, uh, but also for getting power back to the grassroots of the party. But it's... uh, um, They're not happy at all. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who are just fed up with the Conservatives, think they've mismanaged the government uh, and really have failed to deliver on anything significant. And uh, uh, after, what, 13 years in government, people, I suspect, are beginning to think there's a need for change.
0: Yes, Nonetheless, nonetheless, I mean, there were pockets, weren't there, across England where the Conservatives improved their vote. And it seemed that in the red wall seats, there are people up there saying, "We, I know we went to Boris, but we're not going back to Labor. Now, you've got this mm. Conservative conference, the Conservative Democratic organisation, as you said, in three days' time. Um, when Sunak came to power, the Labor lead was at 30 points. Now, extrapolating, as I did before, those local government elections, it seems to have the Conservatives on 29, Labor on 36. Uh, is the electorate responding favourably to Surak or not?
2: I'm not sure. I think that it, there's certainly a case to say that the lead Labor have had, has been eaten away. I don't take that 36-29, by the way, as being accurate uh, because those council elections were only in parts of the country, not in the whole of the country. Right. All of London, Wales and Scotland were missed out of this. I think the reality is it's closer to 15% lead for right. Labor, which is still half of what it was when yes. uh, Sunak came in. So, it, you know, not, not all hope is lost to a Conservative. They, I they don't seem they seem to, mean, the electorate doesn't seem
0: to be in love with Starmer. I know that Starmer is saying only no. today that he'd form an alliance with the Lib Dems if he won minority government. Mm. What a stupid thing to say. I mean, you're virtually saying to the electorate there, well, we don't yeah. think we can win, but we'll certainly pull the Lib Dems in. But, I mean, what on earth? They're not in love with him.
2: No, they're not. And, and that's, uh, you know, I, I've always thought that Starmer was the Conservatives' greatest weapon, actually. You know, this is a man, this is a man who can s- still not say what a woman is. And that's becoming more and more of an issue. (laughs) Uh, He he U-turns on literally every policy. I mean, last week he U-turned on on abolishing tuition fees for students. Uh, You know, a few years ago he was in love with Jeremy Corbyn. Now he's kicking him out of a party. Uh, And it's, you know, you can't actually rely on anything this man says. Mm. And I think people are beginning to find that out. The, the only issue is whether the desire for change, yeah. uh, which which is definitely there, yeah. it outweighs this, what yeah, on earth is Labor and what on earth you, does you, stand
0: for? That's right. I mean, you made the point though, in a piece that you wrote recently, which I read, that a poll showed that the Conservatives have seven in 10 of their supporters in 2019 back on board. Uh, hmm. That's encouraging, I would have thought.
2: It is, yes. They need a bit more, but um, they were down to about half at one point. So is Boris Uh, going to speak at the weekend?
0: Boris is going to speak at the weekend.
2: There's a chance. Uh, There's a chance he's still mulling it over, apparently. Uh, But I wouldn't be surprised if he suddenly turns up.
0: Yes. I mean, there is a mood there, isn't there, that Rishi Sunak is Prime Minister as the result of an undemocratic coup. And that has got the noses of a lot of Conservative supporters out of joint, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, and his problem is he has no mandate at all. He has no no mandate from an election, but he he doesn't even have a mandate of uh, Conservative Party members because they didn't get a chance to vote on him. When they did get a chance to vote on him, they chose the other person, which was Liz Truss. So he has no mandate at all. He he, he doesn't seem very ambitious in what he wants to do. In fact, we've got a issue just running today, but he looks like he's going to water down the uh, EU-retained law. So we're going to end up keeping a lot of EU law, despite, you know, going through all the Brexit stuff to get rid of all this yeah. stuff. So, I, you know, there's a lot of unhappiness. Yeah, Hang I mean, on.
0: I was just looking at that seat of Stoke. Now, Labor at these recent local government elections a couple of weeks ago performed worse than they did when Ed Miliband was leader, and under Tony Blair... Labor won 60 out of the 60 councils in Stoke. So the Conservatives made some ground. Is Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, going to cut taxes to to try to win voters back and strengthen the hand of Rishi Sunak? Uh,
2: I think he is. That's what I was told last week. Uh, uh, And I think it's literally... The, the last thing they've got in the locker to try and yeah. rescue themselves. But I mean, that's uh, not I, credible. I, think we'll
0: think... I mean, that's not credible because Jeremy Hunt no, campaigned, didn't he, for the leadership to bring corporate taxes yeah. down to 15p in the pound. And he just increased it to 25p. Let's get to this 25. wonderful thing about yeah. the
2: coronation.
0: The coronation. I mean, yeah. one story about the coronation had a headline that was a bullseye. In other words, the coronation hit the target. How did things go?
2: It went really well. I, I mean, I, I, uh, I have to say, I, I watched it all. I watched it on television, but uh, I thought it was a wonderful event. Uh, you know, we kind of, the eyes of the world were watching as such. Yes. It, and uh, everybody seemed pretty happy, despite the fact it rained, of course. You know, yes. in England, it had to rain. The BBC coverage was magnificent. It was. The BBC coverage, amazing. Uh, the pubs, you can't
0: beat the pubs. I mean, yeah. the precision. I mean the panoply, the detail. Yeah. I, someone said to me, David, it's interesting. Someone said to me, "Oh, are you watching the coronation?" And I said, "Yes, I am." Well, what time? What time does it all happen? And I said, "Well, I've got a note here that Australian time, uh, the king and queen will arrive at Westminster Abbey at 7:20, and there they coach yeah. pulled up. I looked out; it was 7:20. I mean, the precision of it was yeah. astonishing. I thought that was a lovely touch. When, of course, the successor, the heir apparent has to swear allegiance to the king or the queen, Mm. kneels before them and normally kisses the ring Mm. and William kissed his father on the cheek and the father quietly between his lips said, what did he say, thank you or something. It was a lovely touch, wasn't it?
2: Yes, it was. It was the whole thing went off perfectly. Really, the only argument here is uh, what happened to the anti-monarchy protesters, and uh, because a few of them got arrested beforehand. Oh, but no. it was. Uh, it's a bit. That's a bit generally, rich. Generally, most people are out there to enjoy it. You know? I know. But what about? I mean, what about Harry?
0: He's caught a plane back before his father even arrived back at Buckingham Palace. The lip readers. What's been mm. made of this in England? The lip readers were working overtime. One claim that Harry, speaking to Princess Eugène, his husband Jack Brooksbank complained quote I'm fed up with the way they treat me and Brooksbank according to the lip mm. reader said if I can make you feel any better and even if I can do it it's not the quiet life is it not essentially grammatical but the lip reader said Harry appeared to shake his head and said or allegedly said they don't care how much is being made of all of this he's bad news that bloke Harry isn't he
2: he is, and uh, he was deliberately put back on, you know, uh, on one of the kind of far, further back rows. He wasn't allowed yeah. on the balcony. He wasn't uh, <laughs> allowed. He, I, well, you know, he couldn't see for Princess Anne's hat. But, but the real hero... Yeah, the real hero of the event was, was Princess Anne's feather. Oh, but yeah, that's, <laughs> well, yeah, that's Penny right. Morton and Princess Anne's feather. I know. Princess Anne's feather, which was perfectly placed to, oh, to hide Harry's face. Yeah, the, the, the other hero was Penny Morton <laughs> with the sword carrying. Oh, my goodness oh, me. So, she's now favourite, by the way, to be the next Conservative leader on the back of that. We're back uh, to yeah, yeah, I agree. Time, so can, I agree. So can handle a sword, you I so mean, 51
0: minutes, <laughs> 51 minutes, 51 minutes. Yeah, holding the bloody yeah. sword in the scabbard and she said she'd done <laughs> press-ups and weight training or some damn thing. Uh, oh, where, the one thing, David, I keep wondering, I mean, we know where all the horses go and there's those underground stables there at Kensington. Where hmm. does all that gear go that they wear? They've got to give it back. Where does it go?
2: Oh, Well, I, I assume it goes to horse guards and, uh, and, and there's also um, there's the barracks at, at yeah. uh, Windsor Castle for all the household regiments uh, there as
0: well. It's quite extensive, none, know, so. none do it. None <laughs> do it like the Poms, I thought the whole thing. By the way, <laughs> uh, may I inform you, Mr Maddox, that as I told my viewers last week, the coach that brought the King and the Queen to the Abbey mm. was made in all its detail here at Manly, the seaside suburb of Sydney, by a man I know, Jim Frecklington. Hi he put all of that together with the history of English history hi now on. through the ages. Amazing. Mind you, they went back in the rattle trap that was made in 1762, which Queen Victoria wouldn't ride in. All right, David, look, I'll leave you to grapple well, with all right. of that. Keep well, keep well. All the best. Yeah. We'll talk again soon. There he is. Plenty to talk about over there. Cheers, David Ellen. Maddox, the political editor of Express Online. Of course, they're coming into a beautiful summer. Wimbledon, not far down the track. You can read David at express.co.uk. Before we go, I spoke earlier about this coal-fired budget, a piddling surface, but it's ulcer-making to think where our economy would be without the revenue from fossil fuel exports. But as I've said, with our National Economic Suicide Note authored by the arrogant and insufferable Bowen, the benefit of those resources is being denied to us. I said earlier tonight you might remember that if you told someone 10 years ago you would abolish your fossil fuels and rely on energy for industry and households to come from the weather, they'd laugh at you. Well, the consequences of this energy vandalism are already with us. Simply, last Thursday, Australia's wind turbines failed. All up, Australia's wind turbines have a nameplate capacity of 10,000 277 megawatts. That's the equivalent of about three or four large coal-fired plants. However, over the last year, the turbines have only been working at a capacity of about 30%. In other words, the turbines produce 70% less power than advertised by government and their owners because the wind doesn't always blow. Last Thursday proves my point. The numbers are alarming. Reality is upon us. On Wednesday, a high pressure system over the southeast and south central regions of Australia meant there was a lack of wind across South Australia, Victoria and parts of New South Wales. As a result, the national energy market's wind turbines went from producing 6,367 megawatts on Wednesday afternoon to a measly 421 megawatts at 8am on Thursday morning. Putting that that a different way, it means our grid's wind turbines went from operating at 62% capacity to a shameful 4% capacity overnight. And these things are subsidised. Could you imagine if a coal-fired power plant was running at 4% capacity in the Hunter Valley, the media would be screeching from the rooftops, deploring coal for being unreliable, outdated, archaic, but there was not a peep from the media, the Labor Party, the Greens or the woke corporates, and the situation will only get worse. You've heard me many times. A sensible energy policy can be expressed in one sentence. Our energy must be available, reliable, and affordable. Reli- renewables are none of those. Think about where we are. Liddell coal plant in New South Wales has now shut down for good. A coal plant in New South Wales, the country's largest, is on the chopping block for 2025. That's 30% of New South Wales power gone. What will happen when all our coal plants are shut down and there's no wind and no sun? There'll be blackouts, there will be even higher power prices and the damage to the Australian economy cannot be calculated. Businesses will close, jobs will be lost and pensioners will freeze through winter. Our industries will be forced to send more jobs to countries like China where energy is cheap and reliable thanks to its fleet of more than 1,000 Coal-fired plants. A big thank you to our politicians, bureaucrats, and our unthinking, sycophantic, woke corporates. Well, that's it for me tonight. And for this week, thank you for being with us. We like to think by the time the program is over, we're all a bit wiser and a bit wiser actually than when we started. Don't forget you can listen to the program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. Don't forget Mark Stein, Tuesday to Friday's here. Marvellous, man. Great listen on ADH at 5pm. That's it from me for this week. I'll be back on Tuesday night. I'll see you then. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.